It has been a privilege for the last three, and this being the fourth Sunday in a row, that I've been able to speak with you. Um, if I haven't met you yet, I am nobody important, though my name is Dustin. Um, I am just one who has been fortunate enough to hang out with this thing here that God is doing called Hydrant Church. Um, my wife and I started coming here about three years ago, and in that three-year time period, a lot has changed, um, and the community is better for it. So I'm thankful for your presence. I am honored at the privilege that I've had to come and speak with you these last couple weeks as we continue to, to pray with Tim and Anita as they are about halfway through their sabbatical. Um, if you're unfamiliar with what's going on, um, they have been able to take an eight-week sabbatical that has afforded them the ability to rest, to be able to pull back, and to listen to that still small voice of God. We all need rest. We all should take more rest, and yet we don't choose to do it because we live in a busy world. We live in a world that distractions are, are so frequent, and it's harder for us to be able to pull back and, and do something that causes a pause than it is to simply just go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. But God is good, and this community here believes in that in such a way that they have afforded Tim and Anita the opportunity to take this rest over the next couple of weeks. So continue to pray with them. Pray with them as they move and travel and learn and grow, and as Tim reads and writes, the two things I think he loves to do the most. Um, pray with them as they come back, that the vision that God is affording them will be one that we as Hydrant Church can continue to take and move into this community, into Goldsboro, into Wayne County, because I believe God is doing something fantastic, something different, and something difficult. And so as we move forward to whatever it is that God is doing, Let's continue to pray with them. Um, I'm going to pray in just a second, but before I do, I really want to ask a question. If you know much about me by now, or if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you realize that I like asking questions. I don't like asking easy questions. I don't like asking black and white questions that have a yes or no answer. But I like asking questions because it creates for us this space necessary for conversation and dialogue, which I believe allows us the ability to hear God's voice in a world that is oftentimes too noisy and too loud. So this morning I'm going to start with a question. We'll move into some questions later in the service, but I want to begin with this question. Who would you call a criminal? Who would you call a criminal? Is it the one who steals because he or she doesn't have? Or is it the one who throws away because he or she has more than they need? Will you pray with me? God, if we're honest, we don't like silence. It forces us to have to think. And once we've thought, we're forced to act. So God, we're being intentional now. Grant to us your still small voice. For we, your children, are listening. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. How many of you understand what I mean when I say that something is a systemic problem? I've got one head nod. Thanks, Tommy. How many of you understand what I mean when I say something is a systemic problem? Let's break it down a little bit. See, I want to break it down into two words. First, systemic or systems. So, when we think about systems, what we think about is probably a bit complicated, and I'm going to give you two definitions, one which is a bit academic, a bit complicated, and one that may be more practical. So when I think of a system, what I think of is an interdependent group of components 
living or not living, that work together and are made up by a defined boundary. Complicated, right? So let's think about a system like this. A system is the sum of all parts, all things working together towards a common outcome. Does that make sense? The sum of everything working together towards a, a common outcome. So when I say a what do you think about them? Some of you might think of your kids or might think of your job. <laughs> a problem, though, is, is anything that's not working as it should. So, so something that is out of order, something that disorder has, has entered into and has taken away the ability for it to work efficiently at an optimal level. So let's put those two together for just a second. And, and hear this with me for a moment, because I want you to chew on this as we work our way through our story this morning. A, a systemic problem is one in which something or some things are wrong with the basic components that make up the whole, thereby making the entire system problematic. There's a component or components that have something wrong, and it wonkies up the whole system. So if that's a whole lot for you, I apologize. I know we hadn't hit lunch yet, and for some of you, you're probably sipping on coffee just to stay awake. So hold on to that with me for just a moment as we begin the process that we've walked through over the last three weeks of telling a story. See, I want to bring you up to to where we are today. See, last week we left off in Genesis chapter 33 and 34 with the story of Dinah, this this young daughter of Jacob who has been humbled, has, has been violated by this individual Shechem. And then we see his unorthodox response in that he falls in love and wants to marry her. And then his future brother-in-law's response, and that they take advantage of a city that's vulnerable, killing every male, stealing all of their stuff, and taking over everything that there was their property. We see two sides of the same coin. We see this notion of an injustice, and yet we find revenge was also there. And we begin to wrestle with this notion of how do we allow God to enter in? How do we allow God to be the one that enacts justice, and not we who seek revenge. It's a hard story to to wrestle with, but it leaves us in this place necessary for the next part of the story of Genesis, one that we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but one that I think is extremely important because it helps set the stage for why something happens this morning. And (coughs) The story begins with a little brother. So how many of you have a little brother or little sister? So Jonathan had his hands up way before I, I have a little brother, or a younger brother. He's not little. He's six foot two, 300 and something pounds, so not little, but younger. Um, growing up, I, I loved my brother, but I found him very annoying. He did things that were aggravating, at times got under my skin, and, and I just wanted to get away from him. But, but I don't think he even held a candle to a young man by the name of Joseph. See, in Genesis, we hear about this young guy named Joseph who is the youngest son of, of Jacob at this point in time, and, and he is his father's favorite. He, he's so much the favorite that his father gives him special favors and special graces, and it really drives his family crazy. Now, this story is kind of climaxed when we find that Joseph, who is a dreamer, has this dream that one day his family's going to bow down to him. And, and so he does what <coughs> excuse me, any young child would do. He immediately runs and tells him. He says, look, older brothers and sisters, mom, dad, you, you're going to bow down to me one day. In fact, I've dreamt about it twice. One day there will be a time in which I will rule over you. Now, as you can imagine, this 
doesn't create a lot of favorability with Joseph and his family. In fact, it creates so much dissension that his brothers wrestle with this notion of what should we do? Ultimately deciding that they should throw him in a pit, sell him as a slave, and then pretend that he died. Now, I would have never done that to my brother. And good news is my parents never gave me the opportunity to do anything like that to my brother because I might would have considered it from time to time. But yet, that's what they do. And when we step back from that story of Joseph, what we find is that one of Joseph's older brothers, a man by the name of Judah, is really wrestling with what just happened. He, he's wrestling with the notion of what they've done in their family. And, and he's not happy, he's not proud of it, but he doesn't really know what to do. So he does what he thinks is best, and he leaves. He packs his bags, and he leaves from home. And he, he moves to this area in the land of Canaan that we now know as Bethlehem. Now, while living in, in the Bethlehemish area, he, he finds that work is, is plentiful, that he can build a home and, and can start to develop a family. He does this by marrying a young woman whose name we, we never find out, and then beginning to have children. Now, he has three children, and they're all males. Their, their names are Ur, Onan, and Sheila. And this is where the story really picks up today. It's once Ur, Onan, and Sheila have been born that we really start to dive deep. See, Judah, a patriarch of God's people, a, a son of Israel, a son of Jacob, he, he does exactly what his family's custom says he should do. And he finds a wife for his oldest son. He goes into the city, he, he builds a relationship with the family, and eventually he offers an amount of money for a young woman named Tamar. Tamar, by all rights at this point, now becomes his property as, as she is to be wed to his oldest son by the name of Ur. Now Ur, unfortunately, is, is not a very good person. In fact, we are told that he is such a bad person that God has to put him to death to rectify the evil that he's done. Pretty morbid beginning to a story. And, and in fact, what that does is that leaves Tamar, this now bought bride, a widow. She has no husband and she has no children. Now, the good news is, is that in their tradition, there was this practice in which a woman who was the, the widow of, of a deceased individual, she could actually be saved, at least that's kind of how they put it, through a process known as the Leverite marriage. The Leverite marriage, if you're not familiar with it, is this notion that if a man dies and has a younger brother, the younger brother's obligation is then to marry the widow and to father a child through her. That child will not be the second son's. It will be the first, the deceased son's, and will be able to carry on his lineage. Now, Er has died, and, and Onan is given this obligation, and, and he knows what he's supposed to do, but he, but he also knows something else about the custom and practice of their people. In first service, I, I asked them to say this word back with me. I won't ask you to do that, but listen closely, because this is a word that really matters. See, in the practice and tradition of Judah's people, there was this custom known as primogenitor. And primogenitor basically says that the oldest, the oldest son gets double what everybody else gets. In other words, if you have three kids, the oldest gets 50%, the other two get 25 apiece. Now, Onan is very aware of this practice of his father, and he knows exactly what happens if he fathers a child with Tamar. He loses out on his share, and his share has just gone from 25% to 67%. Now, that's a big loss by any stretch of the imagination. And so what Onan does 
is a practice known as coitus interruptus. And I'm going to stop short of explaining that one. He practices this in such a way that it renders Tamar yet again without children. In fact, it puts her into this position where she is now the wife of a second individual who doesn't care about her, who does not want to father a child with her, and who is treating her very poorly. Now, God sees this, and according to the story, God also strikes dead Onan. Two of the three children of Judah are now dead. And Judah, the father of these three men, he, he's a bit concerned. In fact, he actually came to the conclusion that it's not the kid's fault. It was actually the fault of Tamar, of the woman that he bought for his oldest son. And so he tells her this, this thing, but yet doesn't do it. He, he says, look, I've got a third son, Shelah, and he's, he's kind of young. In fact, he's too young to get married. And so when he comes of age, I will allow him to marry you. Now, in the back of Judah's mind, he's thinking, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do this. I've, I've already lost both of my sons. I'm not going to lose a, a third son to this woman. But he doesn't tell her that. He tells her to go back to her parents' house and to live as a widow. Now, in their culture and, and in that day, that was not a practice that was welcomed. In fact, once she had been purchased with the bride price, she was not really family anymore. In fact, she would not have been invited back under most circumstances. But yet, Judah, who by all rights now owns her, tells her to go and do this. Sadly, what happens is, is she goes and lives as a widow. Sheila gets older, and she's never given the right to marry him. In fact, time begins to pass, and, and Sheila comes of age, and, and, and actually, Judah's wife dies. In the stream of all of this, when she could have been given another husband, Tamar is given nothing. She has no rights. She has no ability. In fact, unless Sheila were to die or she was to be given release from her father-in-law, she can own no property, she has no future, and she is almost as good as a beggar in her family's house. <laughs> so Judah's sons have died. The only remaining one, Sheila, is, is now coming of age, and, and yet... He's not been given the ability of the Reverite marriage. Sadly, when Tamar's, or excuse me, Judah's wife dies, what, what we find is that he goes into a state of mourning and still fails to think about Tamar. His own wife has just died, and he, he still can't think about this young woman whose life and ability that he has taken away and re restricted, if anything. And, and so she, in her state of widowhood, begins to think, what can I do to save myself? Well, Judah decides to do something in this process while she's thinking about this. He, he decides to go and visit a friend, and evidently this friend lives in the village where Tamar is now living at. And in the process of visiting this friend, he comes with an open mind. <laughs> See, Tamar hears that her father-in-law is coming, and she does something that most of us would look at with a bit of derision. We we probably judge her actions and we would judge her, her, we would judge her ability as despicable. See, she takes off her widow's garments. She puts on a, a nice fancy dress. 
She puts a veil over her head, covers her entire body so that she can't be recognized. And she sits outside the city gate where ones who were prostitutes of the temple would have sat. Judah, when he's arriving into town, sees her, entices her, brings her back into the tent and sleeps with her. Now, in the process of all of this, there's a negotiation that happens, and the negotiation is a price. If this is what she is, then she would have been paid. Now, the price that they agree upon, a, a small goat from Judah's farm would, would be more than enough to cover the expense for what she is going through, if this is the kind of person that she is, but yet he hasn't brought any goats with him. So she asked the question, she being Tamar, she says, what can you give me in collateral? What can you give me that will know, that, that will signify that you're going to come back and return with this? And all he has is a staff and a seal. Two highly, highly personal items that would have been recognized by any as the property and possession of Judah. She, she takes these from him as he offers them, and then they consummate this relationship. Upon completion, Judah falls asleep, and and Tamar sneaks out, and when she does, she takes with her the staff and the seal. Judah, when he wakes up, sees that she's gone. He he hurries back to his house and back to his village. He, He goes and gets a goat, and he tries to send it along so that he can get his stuff back because he doesn't want to be caught without these things, but she's gone. In fact, she's gone back to the household that she's been in. She's put back on her mourning clothes and gone back about her business. But something's changed. According to the story, she's actually been impregnated now at this point. And when the time comes that she can't hide it anymore, the secret comes out. In fact, about three months after the deed is done, she is seen to be pregnant, and word gets back to her father-in-law, and he's livid. He's livid because this daughter-in-law of his, his, his property, if you will, she has become impregnated outside of wedlock, and she's guilty of adultery. So he rushes back into town. Judah comes flying back into town, sees her, sees what has happened, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take her out into the city square. We're going to tie her to a post, and we're going to burn her alive. Heck of a judgment. But I can imagine this scene in my mind as she's being drugged out. She says, wait, wait, wait. I know I'm guilty, but I wasn't alone in this. Here is the staff and the seal of the man who forced this act with me. I can imagine her holding those up in the city square and Judah sitting there, the one who is the judge, juror, and executioner. And he falls silent. Silent because no longer can he deny his in this. No longer can he look upon her with this judgment and say that she is guilty. In fact, a whole wave of emotions go over him as he thinks over the time in which she was married to his oldest and then married to the next child and how for years and years she has gone as a widow in her father's household and he is still not given her life. It rushed over him like a wave, and 
in that moment, at that time, I can imagine he hangs his head. And that's when he says, she is more righteous than I am. She is more righteous than I am. These last words by Judah speak volumes to this story. How many of you in here like movies? Anybody a Denzel Washington fan? I mean, who isn't, right? About 20 years ago, Denzel Washington had a movie in which he, a father, starred as this man who, who had just got the worst news one could get. His child had a heart defect. And this heart defect was, was something so significant that the only way to fix it was going to be from a transplant. Now, Denzel's character, by the name of John Quincy Archibald, he, he'd just recently been moved from a full-time to part-time status at work, meaning that his insurance benefits had been cut. They had been moved from such a, a, a place in which they could have afforded this operation to a place where they couldn't. John Q., as he's known in the movie, and his wife are told, you must come up with $75,000 for your son's name to be put on the transplant list. Not even to get the transplant, but to be put on the transplant list. Now, John Q. and his wife, they, they do everything one can. They, they beg, they borrow, they plead. They do all of this to try and come up with the money, only to be told that they are far too short and the hospital is far too overpopulated. So, their son, who is dying, has to go home. Now, John is, is out of ideas. He's, he's at literally the end of his ability. And, and so, when they take his son home, he snaps he goes and purchases a gun. He, he comes back to that same hospital and he holds hostage an entire emergency department. He pulls in doctors, he pulls in patients, he pulls in nurses, and he holds them hostage and he says, the only thing that I want is a heart for my son. As the movie unfolds, we, we hear his story and everything that has led up to this point, including the decisions that are made in isolation that would require him to have to come up with this absorbent amount of money. And, and we see how he, in his moment of desperation, has done the only thing that he knows to do. Eventually, he builds the trust, the sympathy, and the empathy of those whom he has taken hostage by the end of the movie, John is, is at this place where they've decided that they will, they will do the operation on the heart if one comes available. But the bad news is this. The bad news is there are no hearts that will match his son's availability. And his son is really, really sick. In fact, to the point in which they don't know if he'd even be able to make it back from his home to the hospital. And so John then does the only thing he knows to do. He drafts up a will signs it with witnesses, and he claims he's giving his heart to his child. The movie then shifts to a scene in which he's in an operating room, getting ready to do the unthinkable and take his own life. Now for most of us, if we've seen this movie, by the time we get to this point, we have grown empathetic of his plight. We know what's going on. We've seen the story. We've, we've heard everything. We're right there with him. We're, we're agreeing with what he's doing. Because we know the context. 
See, imagine with me for a moment that you were to see this story on the news. Man holds emergency department hostage. Individual holds emergency, emergency department hostage. Many hostages in, in harm's way. Whatever the headline would be, we would read that and think, what a criminal. What a lunatic. Who holds a hospital hostage? But then again, we have to ask this hard question that we started with this morning. Who do we call the criminal? The one who steals because he or she does not have. Or the one who throws away because they have too much. See, this last month almost that we've been looking through the book of Genesis, what what we found is that the storyteller of Genesis is encouraging us to think differently, to talk differently, to discuss differently, because different will allow us the space necessary to be able to move in a way that is different. See, when I said something earlier about the systemic problem, and, and I asked you if you knew what that meant, some of us knew exactly what that means in this place and time. A systemic problem, one in which a component of the system is messed up, and thereby it renders the entire system broken. When we look at the story of John Q, we see a systemic problem. When we look at the story of Judah and Tamar, we see a systemic problem problem. We see these systemic problems all around us, these small and big injustices that happen because of whatever reason that we want to put forth. Selfishness, self-ambition. If we want to put forth the idea of self-preservation and and put out of our mind things like hospitality and grace, we, we find that the systems in which we operate in are broken. But yet, through the stories in Genesis, we're invited to imagine a system that's different. See, in the New Testament, we call this system the the kingdom of God. And it's a system in which words, actions, and decisions are life-giving. It's one where blessings are not locked away, but they are invested into those who could use them. It's a system in which the stranger is cared for in the same way that one might care for themselves. It's a system in which self-preservation and self-interest never come before others. One in which injustice is seen and rectified without being revengeful. It's one where we're held accountable for our choices and decisions because we are aware of how they might affect the other. And I know this sounds inside out, upside down, backwards and ludicrous. And that's exactly the point. That is exactly the point of the storyteller of Genesis. As we are encouraged to imagine a world that could be wholly different. A world in which God blesses us, not so that we can have blessings, but so that others might be blessed through us. A world in which hospitality is not reserved for those that we're comfortable with or that we know, but for the stranger, the marginalized, the ostracized. A world in which we truly put others As Christ put us. Always in front of ourselves. It's a system that seems a bit Pollyannish when we talk about it. But yet it's a system that I believe Christ calls us to embrace 
and an act. See, friends, I realize this sounds hard. And hard is probably a weak adjective in that. I, I realize this seems impossible and, and beyond ability to even conceptualize. But yet, that is what we are called upon to do. When we look at stories such as what we found of Abraham and his call, when we look at stories of, of Jacob and his daughter, when we look at stories now of Judah and Tamar, what we find is that humanity can be at its greatest and it can be at its worst. And yet God continues to use us. We can be people of immense blessing and of deplorable curses. And yet God continues to call us to himself. So this morning, as we wind down this last service, this last moment in the book of Genesis, at least for me, I want you to consider again a few questions. I don't think these questions are spectacular or remarkable, but I do think that if we really give them a chance, they will afford us the ability to sit back long enough to be able to hear what God might be saying to us in a still small voice. This morning we only have three questions rather than the five that we've had every week up until now. And so let's jump in with our first question. Where are we sabotaging others' opportunities? See, in this story, Onan, he becomes the first to sabotage his sister-in-law, Tamar. He does so because what he sees is a system in which if he fathers a child with her, he loses out immensely. He moves from an inheritance of two-thirds of his dad's stuff to a quarter of his dad's stuff. And those costs are just a little higher than what he wants to pay. Judah doesn't do much better after Onan is also put to death because he then withholds from her the only thing that is able to be life-giving, and that is a husband and a child. See, I know I am likely guilty of this too, and and that I find myself often looking at a situation, weighing the benefits and the rewards, and if the benefits are greater for me, then I act. If the benefits are less for me, I resist. And so the first question we have is one, again, that I really hope we can wrestle with. Where are we sabotaging others' opportunities? Second question. Where are we throwing stones in order that others might not see our sin? Now, as a kid, I got in trouble. I know that's probably hard to imagine. But when I got in trouble, the first thing I tried to do was look at my friend or my brother or whomever it was that was with me and point out how what they did was worse. Been there before? If, if I took a cookie... I only took a cookie. I didn't take a cookie and put crumbs on the ground. If I was speeding, I might have been speeding, but I didn't speed and put somebody else in jeopardy. See, there's this human tendency of trying to divert attention away from ourselves so that the shame and guilt of what we've done is is less visible on us and more visible on others. At the best of moments when, when we do this, we actually convince ourselves that our motives, 
Our reasons for doing what we did are justifiable, and the reasons the other person did what they did aren't. I call this throwing a stone in order to distract from what we've done. Where do we find ourselves doing that? See, Judah in this story here is, is guilty not only of adultery, but, but of literally sabotaging his daughter-in-law's future. But when she's found to be pregnant, he's the loudest, he's the most boisterous, and he's the most aggressive. We're killing her. She has broken covenants, laws, societally, religiously. She has done all this wrong. But what have I done? It's not until she produces a staff and a ring that he can no longer throw those stones to distract away from what he's done. And he's forced to face the consequence of his decisions. So my second question to you again today Where are we throwing stones in order that others might not see our sin? And so our third and last question today is this. How might we learn to understand righteousness different based upon what Judah declares? Judah in this story is is caught in kind of this hush mouth. Doesn't really have anything to say. He's he's caught red-handed. He turns and says, she is more righteous than I. But my question is, what has she done? So she has seduced a man. She's posed as a prostitute. She's stolen his stuff. And she's got pregnant. All of those are capital offenses in her day and age. She's done all this and she denies none of it. But yet when we hear it in context and we hear the rest of the story, Do we find fault in her? I don't. See, it's kind of like that story that's told in the New Testament. And in Jesus' day, when when he's sitting around kind of in this big circle of religious leaders, and they throw this woman in, and they, they say, Rabbi, she's been caught in adultery. What should we do? He plays in the dirt. They ask a second time. She's been caught red-handed in the act. What do we do? Still draws in the dirt. A third time, what is your decision? She is guilty of a capital offense, and according to Scripture, she should be killed. What do you say? Jesus looks up and says, I hear you. So whomever amongst you is without sin, you take that first throw. See, I don't know that that I fully can say how we define righteousness different, but I do see in this story how it is defined in a way that most of us would have said, no. What she did is wrong. What she did is despicable, deplorable even. It's something that she should have never even thought about doing. But yet for her, it's the only way she can survive. She has no other options. And and understand this, even as bad as we are today in our culture, we were nowhere near where it was in that culture that would have literally had her as a piece of property to her father-in-law. She would have had to live under his thumb even if he wasn't there. She had to obey rules of marriage even though she was no longer 
married. She had no other hope, no other future. She could hold no property. She had no children. So her reputation in life was over. Why do you think over and over again in both Old and New Testaments, we hear things like, look after the widows and the orphans. They have no stake in their world. So in a world of bad decisions, she makes a decision that we look at and say, yeah, not a good decision. But yet it's the only way she can survive. And then she is said to be more righteous for it. So that third question that I would hope we can wrestle with, how do we redefine righteousness based upon Judah's declaration? Friends and family, as I, as I close this morning, I, I close on a word of thanks. Thank you for being with us and listening and participating in a way that is truly showing me what it means to be community. But don't stop with listening. See, the reason we ask questions is so that we can grow. The reasons we ask questions is so that we can learn and understand and expand where we are because it is through understanding, growth, and knowledge that I believe we can begin to act in a systemic way like the kingdom of God. See, I don't think that this thing Jesus came to bring is something that was isolated to 2,000 years ago. I believe it is something that is just as necessary today as it was then. But yet we find our culture, our world, and our context differs greatly. But yet it's through stories that we retain this connection from long ago to now. So through this telling and hearing of stories, we have moved through a family that God is working with. Through the hearing and conversation of questions, we've wrestled with what these look like in our day and time. And through the places that I believe we will come as we wrestle with these in our family units, in our life groups, amongst friends, amongst co-workers, I believe we will move to act in a way that reflects the kingdom of God. So what do you say? How about a systemic change? One more like the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for stories. Stories that move us beyond the black and white, yes and no, right and wrong, and help us really to dive deep into what it is that you are calling us to do in our world. God, it's stories that will allow us to see a change in the the places, the systems, the constraints around us, and it's stories that allow us to continue to inspire one another to these places. Father, as we've wrestled today with the notion of of what it means to to restrict access to another, of, of what it means to be able to give life instead of death, God, we pray that you would show us how we are doing these in our world. Father, teach us, for we, your children, are listening. Thank you for what you have done and for doing it through your Son, who modeled for us a way that we might live differently in the systems around us. And it's in his name that we ask these in all things. Amen. Well, thank you for the last four weeks. 
Have a great weekend knowing it's going to be really, really hot out there. Drink a lot of water. But enjoy a homemade cookie because that's really going to help with the heat on the way out. Have a great weekend.